0: Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study.
1: Jesus,
2: name above all name, I worship you.
1: Jesus, worthy to be praised.
0: I worship you.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Balog. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Recently, a listener named Jill contacted us for guidance on the topic of fasting. She wrote the following. My son made the observation that so many books that speak about fasting seem to approach it as a formula. But we know that God is all about the heart. The kingdom truths are very new to me, and I've only been studying them for two months now, so I thought I'd start with you to see if you could guide me in the right direction to guide my son. I've been praying his eyes would be open to the kingdom truths. Thanks, Jill. That's a great question on a topic we haven't explored in a 20 minute Bible study yet. So thank you. Today's lesson is for you and your son and everyone else who has wondered about this topic of fasting.
2: Please join us as we put on our spiritual goggles and take a deep dive into Scripture, searching for biblical truth. Let's listen now to the Word of God.
0: A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. That was Acts chapter 13, verses one through three. A second reading from Acts. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith And saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That was Acts chapter 14 verses 19 through 23. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Now normally we'd spend some time on the speaker, audience, and context of these verses, the space method, but the Acts of the Apostles are pretty straightforward. It's a continuation of Luke's Gospel, describing all the things that happened to the Apostles after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Pastor Whipple, the founder of this ministry, also taught us that it covers a key period of prophetic time, an overlap between dispensations, the dispensation of the law, and the dispensation of grace which ended at Acts 28.28. What did you mean by that, Andy? Well, Jordan, most theologians believe that the creation
2: is split up into various time periods, ages, or in this case, as pure question, dispensations. Now, to define it, a dispensation is a method of interpreting history that divides God's work and purposes towards mankind into different periods of time. Now, according to theologians, God's judgments and dealings with people varies throughout each of these dispensations. And generally, most theologians believe that there are seven total. So to answer your question, these verses in the book of Acts happens to be during a 40-year probationary time period between dispensations when certain Jews were converting to Christianity. God was giving the nation of Israel as a whole, meaning under the hand of their spiritual leadership, the Pharisees, a chance, an opportunity to fully accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as their Messiah during this time as well. So this lasted up until Acts 28, 28, and that's in, you know, in the Bible, that's when God leads Paul the Apostle to wash his hands symbolically of Israel and to begin focusing the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. So at this point, the 40-year overlap ends, the law is fulfilled, that dispensation is completed, and the age of grace is in full effect.
1: Yeah, and the point of the verses we heard today is to show that in the early church, fasting, which was also accompanied by dedicated prayer, was a common practice. It was a Jewish practice that can be seen throughout the Old Testament. For example, King David prayed and fasted over his sick child in 2 Samuel 12 and prophets such as Daniel and Nehemiah fasted and prayed in order that God might have mercy on Israel. Also, the 84-year-old prophetess Anna, quote, never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayer, end quote, until she met Jesus, according to Luke 2. So because the root of our Christian tree is Israel, fasting became a common practice in the early church as well. In Acts 13, we see the members of the church at Antioch fasting and praying before selecting Saul, who would become Paul, and Barnabas as missionaries. The text implies that fasting prepared them to receive communication from God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Verse 2 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Barnabas and Saul. And the text also implies fasting, as well as prayer, prepared them to be conduits for the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This may be where believers try to make it a formula, as Jill mentioned. She didn't elaborate, but we can guess. This is about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit the apostles had and the strong desire of certain denominations to have those special powers today. Isn't that right, Andy?
2: Well, Jordan, let's look at Scripture. Mark 16, 17 through 18. It's just one of many places in the Bible that we could use, details some of the powers the apostles had back then. And it reads like this These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, it's important to understand. These miracles were for a time when the Bible was not written yet. And of course, the Jewish people back then needed some kind of sign to believe. And I don't just make that up, that's scriptural as well. 1 Corinthians 1.22 clearly tells us, quote, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, end quote. So we see there, it's, it's kind of the nature of Jews to always require some kind of a visual sign in order for them to have their faith exercised. They wouldn't just go by scripture or trust the word. So therefore, that's the way God designed it. God made it happen that before the scriptures were written and documented, and there was a canon, that God used the apostles and the disciples, people of strong faith, to have the, the gift and the ability to perform miracles to prove that what they were speaking was true. Now, even Jesus himself, if you think about it, offered to heal the crippled man. We, we know that it's in the book of Matthew. He offered to heal the crippled man that was lowered through the roof only to prove to the unbelievers and the, the Pharisees at the time, the skeptics, that he had the power to forgive sin. So he first tells the man when he gets dropped through his, through the roof you know, by his brothers, he says, you know, my son, your sins are forgiven you. And then the Pharisees was like, whoa, 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 how do you say that? Who are you? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus was like, oh, really? Well, watch this. You know, and and forgive me, I'm just being facetious, but, you know, right. just trying to create an image here. So he says, well, you know what, just to prove that I do have the power to forgive sin, because he is God, Jesus is God, he's 100% man, 100% God, he also healed that crippled man and gave him, you know, full recovery of his all his limbs, he was able to walk again. So in a sense, what we're learning from that is that the miracles back then that were performed by by the believers, was merely for a sign, as a proof of faith, that what they did was from God.
1: Right, and, and going back to what you said about, you know, the Jews requiring signs, but the Greeks or you know, Greeks were the Gentiles of the day, um, searching for wisdom, you know, the, the belief is that the, the, the signs no longer became necessary when salvation went to the Gentiles and became, you know, neither Jew nor Greek. And this view is called cessationism. Uh, the The root word there, of course, is cease, as in to end. And cessationism is the view that all signs and wonders ended when the apostolic age ended. Now, the apostolic age, or the time of the apostles, is what we talked about. It's a dispensational overlap when Israel as a nation might still have accepted their Messiah. Again, because Israel was the audience, and Jews always required signs and wonders and miracles, the apostles had these powers at that time. 2 Corinthians 12.2 tells us that. But later it seems they no longer had powers such as the ability to heal. For instance, near the end of Paul's life in 1 Timothy 5.23, he tells his protege, Timothy, to use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And Paul also mentions the loss of his eyesight in Galatians 6.11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So the thinking is that if the apostles continued to have the power of healing, such problems probably wouldn't have plagued them. Because, you know, at one time, Paul was basically indestructible, you know, during his early ministry. In our second reading in Acts 14 today, they couldn't even stone Paul to death. Right, Jordan.
2: You know, verse 9 of Acts 14 says, They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And then verse 20 reads, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city. So just like that, he didn't even need a day to recover. Could you imagine? And then it continues. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And then verse 21, they, quote, preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, end quote. Yet, you know, by the end of his life, Paul had clearly lost the power of invincibility, if you will, and was just like any normal man who grows old and loses his eyesight, as we read that, you know, it was hard for him to read a lot of the lettering to the point where he had to have someone else write letters for him, you know, right. a lot of the letters, the epistles. So within the time period of Acts, we see the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit end because the time period of
1: witnessing primarily to Israel had passed. Correct. And the Greeks, the early Gentiles of the church, were all about philosophy and reason, Obviously, you know, we get Aristotle and all those guys um, from, from the, that culture. You know, they required more of an intellectual faith, which is why we have the epistles and over time, the coming together of the complete Bible. The age of grace is the age of reason, and it's the age we're in now. What's interesting, though, is that signs and wonders will appear again after this age is over and we have been raptured off the earth.
2: You know, Jordan, I think of the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew, when Jesus takes James, Peter, and John up on the mountain, and he shows his glorified state to them. He reveals that to them. And who appears at the time, and most of us know the story, is on one side Moses, and on the other side Elijah. Now, in typology, Elijah represents Christians who were raptured or raised off the earth while still alive because Elijah was taken in the whirlwind. Whereas Moses died, we learn in in Deuteronomy, on the top of Mount Nebo before entering the promised land. But it wasn't until later that the angel Michael, the archangel Michael, after fighting with Satan for his bones, actually takes his bones and brings them to heaven. So we see there in typology, the dead in Christ and the living in Christ being raptured and then meeting Jesus. So here what we see is just a a symbolic view of what that glorified body was going to be like. And it's ironic because we see in Revelation as well, during the tribulation period, there's going to be two witnesses that actually perform the same miracles that Moses and Elijah performed during their time on earth. And they're going to be performing signs and wonders, amazing things, miraculous things. And I definitely recommend, you know, if you have the time at home, make the study and look at it. Um, it's pretty amazing. Now, the key point is this. The time of tribulation is going to be a time when God the Father is dealing with Israel again. It's the, the last week of Jacob. You know, it, it's the time when God puts the clock back on for Israel, where God's going to, God the Father is going to be dealing with them. And of course, in order for them to believe that Jesus is the coming Messiah, they're going to need to see signs and wonders.
1: Yeah, you know, as a writer, I always like the analogy of the great parentheses. You know, it's like this is a sentence or a paragraph or even a story, if you will, about Israel. And our age of grace, the age of the Gentiles, is, is a parentheses, you know. So eventually that, that end parentheses is going to happen and God's going to pick up again with Israel. And at that time, because again, the Jews require a sign, there will be signs and wonders again. So thanks for bringing that out. Um, you know, so back on our main topic. We've looked at what fasting and prayer is not, you know, it's not some magic formula to follow that will open you up to the Holy Spirit so that you can have these miraculous powers that the apostles had. You know, after fasting and prayer, you're not suddenly going to become unkillable or able to heal or speak foreign languages that you didn't study. So the question arises, what is the purpose of fasting? And there's a clue in Acts 14. Verse 23 says, When they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What we see here, and what we saw in Acts 13, if we're paying close attention, was that fasting and prayer preceded important decisions, particularly where believers were dedicated to God's work. Before the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas, those gathered, fasted, and prayed. And before Paul and Barnabas set apart elders in every church, they also fasted and prayed. By the way, that phrase, set apart, is our key clue for those with the spiritual ears to hear it. Amen, Jordan. So,
2: you know, let's talk about the three phases of salvation. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, simply put, is in the courtroom of God, we are going to be found not guilty because of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. We are no longer under sin. We are now justified in God's eyes. Sanctification is, to what you said, it's a time of being set apart. And it's during our walk in this life. We need to continually set, us, set ourselves apart from the world, separate ourselves so that we could stay holy and righteous and please our Lord. And then finally, glorification, which is something that we hope for and look forward to, is going to be a time when if we are justified and remain sanctified or stayed apart at the bema seat or judgment seat of Christ, God will produce for us a glorified body, which is our time period of glorification.
1: And we put it all together, you know, what we've learned today, you know, we said it's the wrong idea to think that fasting and prayer is part of a formula to open yourself to magical powers. But the idea of opening yourself isn't exactly wrong. While we won't suddenly get powers by yielding ourselves to the holy spirit you know we're in a different dispensation from that god does still want us to yield to him in this way he wants us to crucify the flesh daily to suppress the old nature and allow the new nature to flow through and you know he cannot do his work through us as long as we're in the pilot seat another way of thinking about it so the idea is right and and how do we get to that place well one way is through denying the flesh, you know, beating the body into submission, as the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, you know, through this sort of self-disciplinary uh, use of tactics such as fasting and committed prayer. The purpose of fasting is
2: to starve out the desire to suffer the desire of the flesh, to allow Jesus to take back his rightful throne as, like you use the word center, which is perfect to be the lord of our lives. It's when we put Jesus in the corner and we decide to jump in a, in the pilot seat or jump on the throne and be our own lord, right? And then we kind of go to Jesus only when we need something or you know, unfortunately, we I hate to use these words, but sometimes as Christians we kind of see him as a genie. You know, some people that are a little carnal or you know, new Christians don't understand the lordship yet. So what I recommend for everyone at home I found myself doing this more. I try to share this with my wife and I try to share this with my children and my entire family. Is this fasting is not just about starving yourself from food or just omitting certain types of food, like, well, I'm not going to have meat and dairy or what have you, or I'm going to start a diet or I'm going to do intermittent fasting and only eat within this one hour or wait till sunup and sundown. I mean, that's great. Praise God. But there's today, our lives are so much more complicated and there's so many other ways that we can starve the flesh which will then allow us to listen to that soft gentle voice called the holy spirit that lives inside us for instance when it comes to our children it's common today kids play video games they'll watch tv they'll get on the internet they'll text on their phones and we could we can learn from that example as well when we decide too fast when we're seeking god Are we seeking them with all of our heart? Let's make that extra special effort by putting aside the distractions of the world. Shut Wi-Fi off. Shut the phone off. Shut off Xbox. You know, if it's something more than that, let's say someone has a habit, you know, during that time of fasting, do not allow that habit. Don't give it any space. If it's, if it's cigarettes or whatever it might be, you know, make that special time. So it, My point is this, to truly have a pure fast, to want to be able to reset yourself with God, it's not just about not eating food. Therefore, defending our our stance in this argument, Jordan, if you will, that there really is no formula when it comes to fasting to be able to bend God's arm. You know, it's about us refocusing. It's getting the flesh under control, starving it out, even if it's brought to tears, crucify the flesh, and then allow that inner spiritual man, right, that that's sealed within us to take its rightful place in our lives.
1: That's really great stuff, Andy. I think uh, it's so important to fully understand what what the purpose of fasting is and go beyond food. I, I totally agree. There are so many other things these days that are taking the place of, you know, satisfying the flesh besides food. You know, they they did deal with some of the same things we did, like lusts of the flesh, Uh, in the the most base sense, but we have so many other distractions today. I I 100% agree with that sentiment. Before we go, we do need to talk about a trap that Jesus warned us about when it does come to fasting. Uh, In a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines 12 commandments, one of which is this, Do not take personal glory for fasting. Fast in secret or secretly. That's Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, and we did a whole episode on you know, these commandments, titled the Twelve Commandments, by the way, if you're ever interested in going through them one by one. Specifically, in this commandment, Jesus says, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. He says, they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. And by doing that, he says, they undermine the purpose of fasting and thus will get no credit or reward for it. And that's key. Once you get noticed by men, meaning, or, you know, people, meaning you get personal glory for your act of sacrifice, you have received your reward in full, quote unquote, as Jesus says. He says, instead, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. You don't want people to see you, Jesus says. You want your Father, who sees what is done in secret, to see you, because then he will reward you.
2: Notice that keyword reward in Matthew 6.18. This is what those with epinosis, higher knowledge about, and faith in Christ's coming kingdom will understand about fasting. Like any sacrifice we make for spiritual reason, we do it because we're called to do it, to become worthy of the inheritance we have been offered. We do it to crucify the flesh and allow God to work through us in order to bear good fruit, to produce good works that when tested by judgment fire will survive, earning us a reward in Christ's coming kingdom.
1: Yes, that is ultimately the purpose of fasting, and that is our lesson. Until next time, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. God bless.
0: Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show, I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
2: of the Kingdom Incorporated.